I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. As the national discussion about the Black Lives Matter movement continues, businesses and organizations nationwide are examining their policies to determine how to provide a more inclusive, anti-racist environment for employees, clients, and customers. Stone Pigment attorney Heather Lonian, chair of the firm's diversity committee, is going to talk to us about her work and what organizations could be doing. Ms. Lonian, can you explain what it means to create an anti-racist working environment? Yeah, anti-racism means that it's that your focus is, is more holistic than than focusing purely on diversity as a numbers concept. You know, when when this f- discussion first started decades ago, the emphasis was on was just on an increasing numerical representation. But as time went on, people began to realize that that in and itself was not enough to create a, a truly inclusive environment where people felt welcome. And so to be anti-racist means more than just n- n- more than just increasing your numbers, but it, it means recognizing the institutional problems that have led to, to exclusion and racism in the workplace and other environments and taking concrete steps to rectify those problems. So you're not just saying, well, I'm, I'm focusing on diversity as a way to, to increase this particular number of employees, which is, you know, it's part of the discussion, but it needs to be a a broader, um, more holistic effort to analyze your policies and your practices to make sure that you are not only hiring and expanding your representation, but you're also retaining those employees or, or your customers and you're making them feel welcome and making your environment a place where they want to stay. You had mentioned a problem with retention where a firm would work hard to recruit somebody uh, and then have a hard time keeping them. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, because um, you see, in the, particularly in the law firm context, which is what I'm most, most familiar with, you see that the numbers of hiring across the board in, in large national firms, that hiring for women, for people of color, has generally been at the targeted levels that they they want to see, or probably a little bit less, but certainly they're doing a better job hiring than they are keeping uh, these employees. And what you'll see is that um, these employees will enter the workforce, and then after maybe three or four years, they'll start to slowly, um, there's, there's attrition for a variety of reasons. And we were realizing that it was, it was akin to sort of throwing a big fancy party, and you invite a lot of people, but if you come to the party and you don't know anybody else who's there, and, you're, and nobody goes out of their way to make you feel welcome or that you belong there, you're not going to end up staying. And the history of, of the law firm in particular was created at a time when, the, the, for the legal profession, the workforce was exclusively white and exclusively male. And so that business, as the law firm as an organization, as a structure, was built around the societal expectations of white men several decades ago. And a lot of that historical institutional um, 
presence is still there in ways that people don't necessarily realize. For example, law firms spend a uh, for a long time focused a lot on billable hours, and you know you you had to bill a, a certain amount of hours. You had to spend a lot of time in the office in order to advance throughout the profession, and obviously that was um, that was a, you know created disadvantages for women for whom society places a you know a larger burden of ch on child care for women who wanted to have children and had to take maternity leave for and and that in and of itself the business the organization itself the way it's designed was creating pressures that drove women from the workplace in ways that maybe men didn't realize they were doing because the firm had always just been organized that way and so that's one of the sort of policies firms are starting to look at in order to to change to become more family friendly not just for for men, I mean, not just for women, but for obviously for the family looks a lot different now than it did several decades ago, and and that recognition, that recognition, that recognition, and in and of itself, is is the the first step in the process to making the workplace more inclusive. What are some of the changes law firms are making to address something like the billable hours? problem how are they making it more friendly for for people that have you know families well i mean it's actually it's, it's interesting because in, in a lot of ways it's also a, a client driven discussion because the billable hour in and of itself clients were realizing was led to inefficiencies led to to sort of a work model that focused more more on ta the time you spent on something than necessarily the substance and so what they're doing is they're they're focusing more on what's called project-based billing, uh, where was, for example, if you if I have to write a brief and argue a motion, in the past you would say, well, this might this will take however many hours it takes, but you can sort of give an estimate of how long it would take. Whereas now a lot more clients will say, okay, for this stage of the case, we're willing to pay you a certain amount of of money, and that's through, uh, for example, through you know summary judgment. Or through trial, and you as a as a contractor, which is basically what lawyers are, have to have to think more about well, how much time am I going to actually spend on this? What is the most effective use of my time? And obviously, when you're getting away from when you're focusing more on the the substance of the work itself rather than the the um, billing um, the billable time, that obviously allows people to structure their day differently. It allows you know, for example, someone who has to drop their child off at, at school or pick them up early, you, you can sort of work around that. And, and, and what we're seeing now, actually, with, um, with um, telecommuting that we're, we're all doing at some level now because of COVID-19 also, you know, shows that people can work from home. They have options now that they didn't have several decades ago through, as a result of technology that is also family friendly. It allows you to to work from home. You don't have to do the put as much face time in at the office as you used to, and and that also helps families obviously for lots of ways, lots of different reasons. Are there other ways the pandemic and the changes in the way we're working this year are affecting the work you're doing on the diversity committee? Are there other insights that, that have been gained? Well, I mean, honestly, the virus itself, the COVID-19, it had a disproportionate impact on people of color, and not just in the United States. We're seeing that um, throughout the world, that for um, reasons that have to do with the way the health care is administered in the United States, it, it, it tends to, 
that tends to have more adverse effects on people of, of color for a variety of historical reasons. Now, and, and that in of itself, I think, has helped prompt this discussion that we're having now because people began to realize, okay, well, this is, you know, we used to talk about health in the past, oh, it's an individual lifestyle choice. If you, um, if you, you know, do the right things the doctor says, you'll be healthy, and if you don't, you'll, you'll be ill. And we're starting to realize now that that's not necessarily the case. There are reasons why certain populations are affected differently than others. And there's, you know, people who, who, gets, who get ill and ha have access to the best medical care tend to have better outcomes. Obviously, that's sort of a generalization, but people who certainly don't have that access to regular health care, to preventative care, to, to regular checkups, and that also affects health care. We're seeing that specifically, particularly in Louisiana, which has been badly hit uh, by COVID-19. And so I think that does, the, the, the phenomenon itself um, is, is helping driving the discussion and also on the economic level. You know, people who are lower income who tend to have less secure regular employment are being more, uh, and, and even the ones who did have regular secure employment, they're, they're, they're the ones who are being adversely economically affected by this. Obviously, all people are being affected at some level, but you know, when you're starting to see uh, certain populations going to hit harder, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a, a series of one blow after the other. And now on that on top of the, the police brutality incidents that we've, we've seen over, over the, well, we've been seeing for several years, but it's a sort of a compounding, I think, series of issues that are driving this discussion. It's not just one thing. It's the, the way, it's, there's a broader social recognition of the way that institutions and policies, public policies, not only public government policies, but also corporate policies are affecting uh, people of color. And it's not just a, a discussion of, inst of individual choices or individuals making uh, certain decisions or bad apples acting a certain way. No, I mean, it's a broader, broader conversation. And when you asked earlier what anti-racism means, it's, it's, a, it's an understanding that the problem is not just individual people having racist thoughts. I mean, that's certainly part of the problem, but the discussion is much, much broader than that. And the problems will not be addressed uh, by, you know, punishing one or two bad apples. It, 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 you have to change the policies and you have to change the, the, the structures of society in a way to deal with these structural inequalities. What are some of the less obvious ways that racism manifests itself in a, in a workplace? I mean, for example, there are ways that, um, I mean, I think part of the discussion, like I said earlier, that has changed over the years is that we have a lot of laws in place now that deal with overt racism, racial slurs, you know, the, you know, the law has been fairly, uh, clear about addressing those problems, but what's less obvious is the way that there's sort of a lack of inclusion or, or a disparate impact of policies on certain people in ways that aren't, I mean, I mean, obviously disparate impact is, is covered by Title VII, but in, on, a, on a sort of a, a more personal level, we tend to focus on being drawn to people who, who are similar to us in one way or another. and in a lot of ways, there are some obvious similarities that are that are apparent 
on a, on a sort of a surface level. Oh, you not o- not only race or or religion, for example, but you know you went to the same school as I did. You we have children in the same you know soccer uh, team or something like that. Where there's obvious personal connections. People tend to be drawn to that, and that's a, that's a nature. Of, that's humans are social animals, and that's how we interact. And there's nothing that's particularly wrong with that. But the problem is that when, as I said earlier, these workplaces that have, you know, as a certain his, historic uh, t- tendency or or bias towards one person or another, uh, or or structural uh, inequalities. When, when people are entering those workplaces for the first time, either as a, a woman, as a person of color, as a LGBT, entering those majority spaces, it's less obvious to people who aren't members of that group how they can be, how, how exclusive those environments can be and the, the ways that we don't even realize, for example, that we are excluding people uh, can, can, can be harmful. We, we don't for example, on work assignments, people tend to, to work with people who, with whom they've had positive experiences in the past, and that's fine. But, you know, that's perfectly normal and natural. But they don't always tend to think, oh, well, here is the new person coming in who doesn't have that, that sort of same sort of obvious connection or prior connection with you. I mean, is that person getting the same access to opportunity to advance in the workplace? Uh, or is that person just sort of being shuffled off into a corner and eating lunch by themselves every day, not getting included when the when the big case comes in, not even being thought of, not even being, you know, it's not even always a, a situation where someone's being consciously excluded. It, it, it's just, it could also be a situation where people aren't even being part of the conversation. They're not even being consciously thought of. And that's as big a problem we, we find in workplaces uh, for, for losing... Um, people of color for losing women in, in law firms. That's as, as big of a problem as the lack of access to opportunity to advance. It's terrible. What, what are the best practices that, that smart law firms and businesses are doing to mitigate that? Well, I think it's first, first it's, you have to have a conscious effort by you know, your leadership to be intentional about these policies. To say, well, I mean, most law firms, big law firms, and and or throughout the country aren't going to say, well, we don't want to hire women. We don't want to hire people of color. I mean, that, that typically, in my experience, doesn't really happen anymore. But there's, there's sort of a general feeling that diversity is a good thing, that inclusion is a good thing, but there's no sort of intentional policy to make that happen. And so the first step is you, you have to say, well, you know, our representation our workplace needs change. That's the very, very first step, is that we need to do better. And once you uh, make that, that decision and you have buy-in from the actual leadership, you're not just putting the, the diverse people at the firm together on one committee and, and telling them, okay, go, go solve you know, these problems yourself. You're having everybody at the firm say, okay, this is a problem that we need to do better on because that's what reflects our values, that diversity and inclusion and anti-racism are part of our values and we're going to live our values. And the next step, I think, is if you you have to acknowledge that not everybody within your your workspace has familiarity with these issues. Uh, you may want to either um, 
you, you need to have sort of a focus facilitated discussion about where, what anti-racism is, uh, what privilege is, what exclusion is, and uh, you may not want to bring in somebody from outside your firm tab to facilitate this conversation because it can be sort of, you know, for some people it can be an uncomfortable conversation and for some people there's a, there's a complete lack of familiarity with these uh, concepts at all. And so you have to sort of meet people where they are and try to bring them into, a, into the discussion and try to f formulate uh, policies that are organic and reflective of your actual organization and what what steps you need to uh, take in order to um, move towards a more inclusive uh, work environment and sometimes you uh, you know your your goals whatever your goals are, are going to be sort of you know obviously specific to your industry but you, one area obviously to look at is hiring is um, retention and promotion are you ha you know for example if you hire uh, a lot of you know a diverse workforce but none of them are represented in your leadership at all you know none of them are, are advancing through the through the company and, and achieving these leadership promotion you know positions you have to, to ask yourself well, well why is that are, is everybody getting the same access to opportunity to advance or is this a place where we can improve and how do we improve um, and it can be something where you know is everybody getting to to know is there a good is everybody getting to know everybody in the organization is there a good mentorship culture is that an area where we need to improve are these are these diverse employees getting hired but there's no one to mentor them through the organization and they they leave or they're they're not advancing into up up the chain the way that their white counterparts are that's that's another area where you have to have a sort of an honest conversation and you have to be in dialogue with your employees because part of the, a big part of this process is listening. We all sort of can think we know, well, this is what, this is what we need to do and this is where we can uh, improve. But, you know, are you, so, uh, what we're seeing in the news is that some organizations that are getting into, that are having problems with this issue are organizations that may have had, had this issue be, certain issues be festering for a long time amongst their employees and there was no real outlet to have an honest uh, dialogue until the situation sort of blew up publicly and in a way that did reputational harm to the organization. Uh, and that's obviously not ideal for anybody because employees want to enjoy their workspace. They want to, to feel like they're being their authentic selves and that this is a good uh, place for everybody. And that's obviously good for the organization. So you have to, um, have the dialogue, you have to have a sort of an honest, hard look and review of all your policies. And it has to be an annual process. It's not, there's not going to be a situation where you just hire, say, a, a diversity trainer to come in and then two hours later the, the, the entire process is solved. I mean, it's a first step for an ongoing process that you have to continually commit to. I mean, there's nothing in any business that you're going to do on any level where you're going to bring in somebody and fix it in two hours it has to be and you have to commit to that every day and you have to live diversity and you have to say are we hiring for example is our is our hiring pool as broad as it can be is that reflecting the the the, the quality and talent that we have in the community or are we just recruiting at the same five law schools because that's where all five of us 
who are in leadership positions went and that's where we feel comfortable and we are just going to keep trying to reach out to find other versions of ourselves basically uh, that that are, is, is our hiring uh, committee diverse is there somebody who are we even are we even focusing on these issues or is this just a complete blind spot does our view of what diversity is reflect you know ourselves or does it reflect the entire community I mean there's issues where pretty much everybody's guaranteed to have some sort of blind spot which is why you need to have make the conversation as broad as possible uh, you need to, to make sure that, that you're being cognizant of the ways in which you may be unintentionally have a bias or maybe unintentionally excluding somebody in a way that's that causing you to cause hurt to somebody that you don't even realize that you're doing I mean that that's kind of the the ways that we need to improve our hiring and our and our workspace and our promotion and our review process and our retention policies I mean is your review process a fair one or is it one where you know you it's sort of people get some a whole lot of feedback that isn't constructive or it's a feedback that happens at the end of the year when the problem may have been nine months ago and and the person who's getting this feedback is sort of being blindsided by it and doesn't really understand you know how it's uh, what it means or how they can improve and I mean there are ways there's pretty much every step of the of the employment process where you can look and and sort of evaluate whether or not that this is a, a truly inclusive diverse process or is this something where we have a lot of historical structural biases that have sort of steering outcomes towards a preordained result you had mentioned that law firms and the concept of billable hours all that stuff was kind of built for you know the the, the days of you know white men mm -hmm. it wasn't thinking about women in the workplace and, and and balancing family time and all that stuff to what extent is the leadership of 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 law firms here in New Orleans still that same group of people? I would say it's in terms of uh, in terms of intention I, I wouldn't say that that's the case I mean I, it's definitely not the 50s anymore where uh, there's people who are you know sort of intentionally have this sort of I guess mad men 1950s mentality I think there's a lot of Certainly, you know, within there's certain, there's certainly many excellent female and diverse lawyers, but I think all firms would recognize that it's an area where, especially on the defense side, the defense bar in New Orleans, that the firms need to be uh, more representative. That it's not it's an area where we can all do better. It's not. I don't think there's any firm who would say, you know, what we're doing, everything's great, and we there's no room for improvement. And I think generally there's there is you know recognition of that fact, but the the question is okay. So what what do we do now? How do we actually help move the bar? How do we fix these problems? I think um, you know, I th and I think law firms, not just in New Orleans and across the country, you see that you know in, in leadership positions and the partnerships, you know, you don't see the level of you don't see the representation at the at the partner level for women. For people of color that you see at the associate level which is the the sort of i guess the the entry uh attorney position 
uh, you know, you have most firms, you have, you know, partners, and then you have associates. And so you're seeing, what you're seeing is you're seeing the hiring. You're generally seeing more young female, young diverse attorneys at the associate level. But for whatever reason, it's you're still not seeing it at the partner level. And, and it may just, you know, some part of that may take time. Is You know, in, in, in an attorney... In, in law firms, it usually takes seven, at least seven to eight years to make, to advance through that structure, uh, to be, to make the, the partnership level. And you're, you're still just not, you're still seeing a lot of attrition that, and I, th- and I, and I, I don't think that's any secret. That's something that the law firms and the, the legal profession has devoted a great deal of effort and time studying and talking about, uh, but it's just something where we all need to do better. Yeah, I was wondering if the leadership is still, a, for the most part, homogenous group, and it sounds like it's it's less so than it was in the Mad Men days, but still, to some degree, that's still true. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, many firms, if you in New Orleans, if you go and sort of look at the the portraits of their old founding partners, you'll see that it's you know it, it was you know exclusively homogenous. Now it's not it's not exclusively homogenous. There are women. There are people of color, but, you know, there are LGBT people. I mean, there were, there were probably LGBT people back then, but there are openly LGBT people now. Uh, but you're still not, it's, it's not reflective of New Orleans society. Uh, and so, and, and there are plenty of um, excellent African-American lawyers in, uh, in New Orleans. There's certainly many African-American judges in New Orleans, but for some reason the firm, the, the defense firms are not, you're not seeing that same level of representation, and I th- and again I think that's not. We again we can talk about whether the, you know the the individual leaders of these firms, but again it's not necessarily even about them. It's about the way that these firms were made and and who they were made for and how we have to go, we have to you know evaluate the the structures of these firms in a conscious intentional manner, and see how we can make them more inclusive to uh, diverse uh, attorneys and staff. You'd mentioned, you, you know, you attended Harvard, and you were talking about even that revered institution had some work to do to get more inclusive and get with the times. Yes. Can you just tell me a little bit about the stories that you were hearing about the, you know, the old days? Oh, yes. I mean, when I, I went to Harvard Law School, and when the women first were admitted in, in numbers, in numbers, they didn't have bathrooms for uh, the. They didn't have bathrooms on the law school campus for women, and so you had to. The women had to walk, you know, 10 and 15 minutes to the undergraduate campus to to have a a, um, a bathroom. And obviously, this was something that the men who ran the the law for the law school had no. That probably never even occurred to them when they were admitting these women that. They would have to use the bathroom because what? Why would they ever think about that? Uh, they never had to use a women's bathroom, so it was just something they were completely oblivious to. And so it's another example of of diversity not necessarily leading to inclusion. I mean, those women were clearly on the campus; they were representing, they were represented as a group, but they weren't included. They would they wouldn't have felt included in a meaningful way, and you know. It's it's just interesting, you know, all of these these issues about 
history and, and what it and, and whether or not you feel like like the names or the, the history of an organization makes you feel included. I went to my undergraduate, uh, I got my undergraduate degree at Yale, and now there's a discussion about whether or not because of the 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 owners, uh, the founder, uh, Eli Yale's uh, links to slavery, whether or not we, they should rename the the, uh, the entire university, which would be a huge undertaking. But, it, you know, it's just fascinating to think that we've even we we're progressing to the point of having this discussion. A few years ago, at Yale, there was a one one of the colleges or or residential colleges, or I guess it's a fancy term for a dorm, but one of the residential colleges was named after uh, Calhoun, who was a notorious advocate for and proponent of slavery, who actually assaulted somebody on the floor of Congress over uh, over slavery, and 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 his name was just. You know, had been on this uh, on this college for decades, and they finally went through the lengthy process of, of of changing it. But it was part of a again a facilitated year-long discussion where you finally had to confront the sort of ugliness of this history and the way that that name sort of made people of color feel. You know, black students having to you know go to one of the, the greatest universities in the world, and you see this institution named after uh, somebody who was an unapologetic uh, slave owner and white supremacist. And having to have honest conversations of the type we're having now, uh, and you're seeing changes now that I honestly thought I would never uh, change, see change, and they're being, and they're having, and they're happening in a way that's a lot less confrontational than they were in the past. For example, in Mississippi, just yesterday, they removed the Confederate flag off their uh, state uh, flag, and that was something that had obviously been discussed for decades, and was in the past in very, uh, very sort of heated discussions, and this was a, a very quick and, and, and formalistic decision, in a, in a way that's, you know, very inspiring uh, for, uh, for the future. As, you know, people just sort of coming together and saying, "I understand." Okay, I understand why these symbols are are hurtful, and that the fact that they are hurtful to you is certainly justification in and of itself for removing uh, for removing them. And that you know that that sort of acknowledgement of the hurtfulness, rather than just sort of you know, in the past it was sort of you know, sort of also like a balancing test where you're saying, oh, well, your hurt has to be balanced against, you know, our history. But now it, the, 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 the needle has moved. And I think people are beginning to realize there's a brighter societal uh, acknowledgement of the importance of these issues. I mean, in the past, you're seeing that in opinion polls now. More people are not only realizing that, that this is an important, you know, is, is an important issue, but the you know the importance that they they give to it is higher, and you're just seeing that playing out across the corporate space and the the public space, not even in, just in the United States but across the world in a way that's I think fascinating and inspiring. Last question, based on all the protests and the and the cultural change that's happening, what gives you the most hope for? real substantive change uh, related to the work that you've been working on for years? I think, you know,
know, I think a lot gives me hope. Um, as I was just saying, I think that we're starting to, again, see people, you know, it's not just, it's no longer just diverse people having these conversations and saying, you know, these, these issues are important. It's, it's a broader societal change. It's people across the political spectrum. And, you know, I think, you know, change can be happen in sort of a, a glacial pace. But I, what gives me hope is that, you know, when the lawyers who were a generation or two ahead of me came out of law school, you know, the female lawyers, the people of color, African-American lawyers had to literally break these glass ceilings. And for them, you know, admittedly, when the when they first entered the workplace, it was not an inclusive or welcoming uh, space for them. And they they endured and they made it more inclusive so that it would be easier for me when I in my generation when we came. And so we all, you know, we need and and when I was even when I was leaving law school and entering the workplace, it was not as inclusive for LGBT people at all as it is now. And so you're seeing I've seen this change in my own lifetime. And I know that if we continue to do this work, it will be easier for the people who come after us, for the next generation. And what gives me hope is the idea that there's, you know, a generation from from now, there's not going to be anybody talking about, you know, we need, you know, advocating for more diversity because these issues aren't going to be here, hopefully, for them. Or at least it'll be so much easier. And I just, I, the change that I've seen in my own lifetime, you know, even even this past week where you're seeing the Supreme Court making it easier for LGBT people to have an inclusive work space where they can be their, their authentic selves. I mean, the... I mean, just, just to see that sort of legal achievement when you acknowledge that people have been fighting for that change, to be protected from discrimination for so long, and to finally see it happening is, is what gives me hope for the future. To see all these changes uh, that, you know, that people had fought for for so long, you know, the removal of the Confederate symbols, the, the recognition of, of LGBT people, their right to not be discriminated against, the, the changes that are allowing women to, to, to work more uh, freely in the workplace and be their authentic selves. I think it's just, it's, a, it's frankly a beautiful change. And I think that it will continue. It seems that people are very much committed to seeing it progress. And I, and I think these are generational changes. I don't think that these are changes that are just going to sort of, you know, like opinion polls that will change from one week to a, the next. I think these are you know, sort of generational shifts on the way people view these issues. And I, that's what gives me hope for the future. It really is an exciting time. And it's interesting that it's happening in reaction to, you know, an administration that's not a progressive administration that's, that's, that's been really communicating almost the opposite for the last three and a half years. So yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that is fascinating, and I, I don't know if it's because, you know, for a long time, I think people sort of took these issues, you know, they took social progress for granted, that we were sort of on a, a, a path that wasn't going to have any sort of um, 
setbacks. And certainly in my lifetime, you know, I'm old enough, I don't, or I'm of an age where, you know, sort of the, you know, it's generally my entire adult lifetime, you it seemed to be moving in one one direction. And then you saw someone who, who so, um, so forcefully advocated for other positions that I think it, it forced many people to, to genuinely confront race in a way that, or, you know, that they really hadn't had to think about in, in the past. And in the way it sort of sharpens you, it forces you to ask yourself what your values are. And in a situation where, you know, some of the policies were so confrontational that it was no longer possible for people to just sort of sit on the fence about where they stood on, on you know, what sort of, how, how you're going to refer to, to people of color, how you're going to, you know, treat LGBT people and whether you're going to, you know, respect their families and things like that. Um, you know, some of these policy changes being advocated were so confrontation, confrontational in the sense that they forced people to confront what uh, a race in a way that maybe they, they hadn't when under different, under different uh, administrations, even conservative administrations who had, you know, sort of been more favorable of using euphemisms and sort of, you know, not really directly uh, stating what their positions were in, 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 in unvarnished terms. Uh, you know, not that, not tweeting out white power videos. Yes, yes, exactly that. You know, and, you know, it's you know people had to say, well, you know, again, do you support white power videos? Uh, do you support uh, you know calling you know Mexicans rapists and, and things like that? And, and it, it forced them to really say, well, you know yes, those are my values, or no, those are, you know, completely antithetical to my values. And, you know, when, when corporations are, are, are having to, to do, you know, take stances that, you know, they would have, you know, a few years ago, I mean, been complete, they would have simply gone out of their way to avoid. Uh, and, and you're also, you know, it, it becomes a lot more, uh, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, it becomes almost easier to take a stance in a way that it might have been more difficult a few years ago. Um, and when you're seeing, you know, in the response, especially to this, this police brutality videos, you know, you know, usually in situations where, you know, the, the, the president sort of goes out of the way to, you know, lower the, the temperature of discourse, tries to be sort of the comforter in chief, uh, to, to not have any anybody really playing that role, uh, it sort of forced in a way it sort of forced it back on on society to say, well, what if there's no sort of official person in this, you know, official sort of person playing the head of state role who's going to sort of be the, you know, the the who's going to literally sort of symbolically represent the broader societal unity. You know, now that that rule has been completely abdicated, uh, it, re it requires, you know, other people, other thought leaders to sort of take it on.
and in a lot of ways, you know, corporations in our society are have you know huge social influence, and you know, a lot of executives are you know are celebrities in their own right. People like Mark Zuckerberg, people, you know, like uh, you know Tim Cook. It's 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 hard to. Uh, I mean, I mean, people sort of naturally sort of turn to them for responses and then social media has made them far more accessible in a lot of ways than they might have been in the past you know you know you know when i was growing up in the 80s i didn't know what the ceo of uh ibm looked like or the ceo of ford i mean i didn't know who they those people were but now they're they're not only you know famous but they're also Access, accessible and also very much, you know, attuned to public opinion. And public opinion has now a vehicle where it's, you know, sort of instantly, uh, you know, you're instantly able to gauge it through some, you know, Twitter and what's trending and things like that. Before, you know, corporations had to take polls and that took a while and, you know, things played out much more slowly than they are now. You don't have this sort of instantaneous reaction to things. Catalonian, thank you so much for your time. That was a great conversation. I enjoyed your insights, and I look forward to talking to you more uh, about all of this interesting stuff down the road. Certainly, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.